Vital Transformation recently published research that found 60% of FDA-approved medicines from 2011 to 2020 originated in the United States. Our study called The U.S. Ecosystem for Medicines, How New Drug Innovations Get to Patients is available for download from our website, vitaltransformation.com. I'm Dwayne Schultes, the CEO of Vital Transformation, and today I'm joined by two of my colleagues in our Grumpy Old Men broadcast series, and they are Dr. Joe Hamming, VT's U.S. Business Director and a card-carrying neuroscientist. Hello, Joe. How are you doing? Hello, Dwayne, and hello, Harry. Great to be here in, in Windy Charlotte. Windy Charlotte, the home of Harry Bowen, and Dr. Harry Bowen, as we've just introduced our VT consulting economist and a professional purveyor of common sense. Hello, Harry. How are you doing? Greetings. Doing uh, pretty good. And hello, Joe. In 2009, Harvard's Arthur Damage published a research study, which is very famous, and it found that Europe at that time between 1970 and 1980 was producing more than 55% of the world's pharmaceutical products. However, according to our research, this situation is completely flipped with the U.S. now innovating 60% of the world's products, and Europe is now down around 20%. Harry, what happened? Price controls. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Thank you. We're done. Yeah, no. <laughs> that, no. Well, that, that's part of it. But it really, it's government takeover of the provision of uh, medicines. A feature of that, of course, is the price restrictions that they've placed to price medications low, not provide a significant remuneration to companies that would introduce medicines, browbeating foreign companies that introduce medicines into uh, Europe. And so there's a, you know not much of a return on investment anymore of investing in European uh, pharmaceutical companies, biopharma companies. Uh, and as a result, the center of mass of innovation has gradually transferred over to the United States. But if you talk to European politicians, what they always tell you is, well, we don't necessarily sell here, but we innovate here. So why would there be a barrier to entry of just using your operation in Europe, but then selling in the U.S.? Obviously, there's Swiss companies that do that. Why is it more efficient than to pick up stakes and move to the U.S.? Well, a lot of it has to do with sources of venture capital. One. Uh, the other part of it, I suppose, would be that, again, they're not going to be able to successfully earn a rate of return on the products that they sell in Europe. So they, they may obtain some venture capital funding from the United States, but the prospects are slim in terms of their own home markets. So, Joe, you were the head of science policy at Pfizer for 10 years. You ran that shop globally. What's your opinion on why Europe is not as competitive as it was 20, 30 years ago? Well, Harry gave us a good start, and that is the failure to pay for these medicines that that, uh, come to the marketplace. Uh, It has a huge, huge impact. The other is, of course, many of the large companies, Novartis is a really good example, Sanofi, have moved a lot of their research operations to the United States. That's really had a a huge impact. Why do they do it? They do it because places like Boston and San Francisco and uh, San San Diego Diego, uh, have critical mass of people, uh, scientists, clinicians, engineers. And, of course, this is the home, in the United States anyway, of venture capital. This really important feeder stock, if you will, for taking small initial ideas and moving them forward. If you think that you can price control and you can continue to rain on the parade of the pharmaceutical industry, treat them with less respect than you did in the past, 
it is not that surprising or it shouldn't be that surprising to see something of an exodus of these companies and uh, of the intellectual property that uh, they produce. There's a study from 2014, and the name escapes me now. We can certainly put it on the website when we publish this podcast. And what it found was that if you had over 30% of your research operation in Europe, it actually became a drain on your competitiveness. By having this exposure to the European market and being overweight in the European market, it actually impacted your ability to compete. And this gets to Paul Krugman's Nobel Prize in network effects. And it would seem that we're seeing an enormous amount of efficiencies being created by the U.S. market by virtue of the education system, the college system, the research system, and the finance. It seems to be there's critical mass in certain big hubs, as Joe mentioned, San Diego, San Francisco, increasingly Raleigh-Durham, Boston, as we know, New Jersey. Harry, how do these network effects manifest themselves from an economic standpoint? Yeah, well, generally we refer to these things as agglomeration effects. So you think of a Silicon Valley type of idea, and you you co-locate in a you know relatively small area a tremendous amount of talent. So there's a lot of competition among the companies that exist in those ecosystems in those uh, agglomerated regions. And so there's a constant uh, search and turnover of talent going to different companies potentially. That's particularly true in the IT sector. Um, how much that happens in the pharmaceutical sector, I'm, I'm not really aware. But this generates a kind of economies of scale effect. We build these industrial parks and IT parks, and we do that because we believe that there are these efficiencies that are gained by locating resources within a relatively short distance of each other. They can see what's going on. They can try to outdo each other. They can bid away talent. They can do this. And all of this is a much more uh, efficient mechanism for reallocating talent across these companies. Because the United States, at least uh, up to this point, has not demanded in the market sort of strict pricing controls and things, although we're moving in that direction. The U.S. market, because it does afford an ability to get a rate of return that is acceptable for venture capitalists and others uh, in order to invest, is really why really the United States sells in Europe, because they can generate in a sense, their rate of return revenue primarily in the U.S. market because we're large. Uh, and then they look through price discrimination and say, well, okay, you know, if the Europeans are going to demand this at a very, very low price, we're sort of willing to do it. In the absence, if we start controlling it in the United States, right. Europe is going to be an even uh, a bigger desert for pharmaceuticals. So that's a slide off topic and things, but I, I think it also has to do with really underscoring the point of the government intervention in the allocation of resources is very detrimental and is certainly one of the major explanations for the decline of Europe. And this gets to something when I did my podcast with Amitabh Chandra from Harvard about a month ago. He made this point as well that there was a belief in the U.S. when we started H.R. 3 and you know, now with the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to get Greek 
prices in the U.S. when he sort of says what's actually going to happen is Greece is going to start paying U.S. prices. <laughs> and that's probably more along the lines right, of what's right. going to happen. It will be higher. Yeah, you and I discussed that during some times and some past research of what would be the impact if, for example, there was this, um, uh, what do we call it, you know, where we're comparing prices, we have to meet a benchmark, a kind of world benchmark. And in the end, that, that might on average bring down prices of the United States, but it's going to prevent some markets from receiving pharmaceuticals because the price will be higher. You'll get a one world price, as you're kind of saying. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a whole bunch of unintended and potentially predictable effects, but none of them are good for the patient. And none of them are good for innovation either, right, unfortunately. Right, absolutely not. Just wanted to add a couple of things to what Harry has said and in, in what you let off with, Dwayne. First of all, the venture capital investment that we see in the U.S., with, without going into all the specifics and how much is in Europe and, and how much is investment invested in Europe, how much in the United States, we know from everyone we speak with, from policymakers to people in the biopharmaceutical industry, it's a night and day difference. I yeah. mean, it, it hardly, it's hardly a comparison. It's not a fair comparison between the two. When someone's investing in an area, whether it's, again, Boston, Research Triangle, very close to where we are now here in Charlotte, uh, San Diego, etc. They want that innovation to stay there. They want to be close to it. They they don't want to get on airplanes to go to Timbuktu, or they don't want to go you know elsewhere into 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 Europe. So that creates this magnet, and it creates a magnet for people. That's the, the second piece that I wanted to say, which is a bit of a, re, a human resources thing. Areas like Boston and San Diego are so filled with innovative new companies, little companies, you know, medium-sized companies and large companies. If you're a scientist working in one of those, you have many, many options. If you, if you don't like your job, if you uh, don't do well in your job, uh, if you want to go to uh, advance and do something different, it may be perhaps in a slightly different field, you don't have to move. You don't have to pull your kids out of school. You simply go another direction down the highway. You have this embarrassment of riches. I don't think that is emphasized enough. It has a huge impact on growing these and maintaining these incredibly important research hubs. Yeah, I mean, and by the way, just to clarify something, I think, you know, when we talk about the U.S. venture capital market, it's not like all this money is just coming from U.S. citizens. Right. You know, it's worldwide. It's just that we have, just like the New York Stock Exchange or something like that, uh, we have very efficient capital markets. And so, you know, a lot of the funding for this is not just coming from U.S. citizens. It's coming from Europeans. It's coming from Chinese. It's coming from the Japanese. Uh, but our market system... Yeah. is is able to most efficiently allocate this kind of risk capital to entities that require it. Well, one of the largest venture capital firms is Sofineva, uh, based in Paris, but obviously the outsized part of their revenue generation comes from Silicon Valley, California, and that's where they're right. doing their investments. And by the way, I just found out that the bus system in Charlotte is actually uh, managed and owned by a company in Paris. Uh, that surprised me. Well, <laughs> So. Well, there you go. <laughs> Somewhat oblique to our topic today, but we'll, we'll, we'll I, I take know, it as an example. The, the, the point is, is that people should not <laughs> confuse the U.S. venture capital market as if it's only U.S. Uh, entities that are undertaking these investments. Well, look, everyone's looking for a return, right? Right. And if, you're, if you need, so if you're you need to be Belgian, somewhere. If you're a Belgian, 
You're going to which I am. Yes. So, so what venture capital fund? If you want to risk your money, are you going to go into a Belgian venture capital fund? Uh, if they exist, well, that's well. But that said, you know, VIB, the Flemish Institute of Biotechnology, has done extremely well. Matter of fact, they're very quiet about it, but it's been one of the largest returns on investment. If you were to invest in all of VIB's early stage biotech companies, you would have done very well in your funding. And where were those companies? But the exits obviously come. <laughs> the exits all come based on the U.S. market. That's right. that's the problem. Okay. But yes, the early stage works just Joe. So the shift that you mentioned, Dwayne, over this period of time from the work that Neller did to the most recent work that, that we have uh, published, th- this shift should be applauded. That's what's so frustrating to me. And as we speak with with our, our colleagues in industry and, and, and policymakers as well, it is not appreciated for, for what it is. We've created this system. It has grown and grown in an outsized fashion. And now we're talking about bad policy prescriptions like the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, <laughs> or, the, or, the Innovation Reduction or, Act. Or, or as some of our friends, good friends <laughs> call it, the Innovation Reduction Act, comes along and has a the major impact that it's going to have is to gut parts of the industry, create the kinds of hurdles that we see elsewhere. So basically, we would be importing those bad policy prescriptions from yeah. you. We know what it looks like, and we don't like it. That is what's going on in Europe. But we're now dangerously close to you know, importing it here in the United States. Well, the problem is, from a policy perspective, it's cynical. Canadians get this stuff for 30 cents on the dollar. The Europeans right. get it for 30 cents on the dollar. Right. Darn it, we should get it for 30 cents on the dollar, too. And it's right. cynical beyond belief. Right. Because the markets have diverged so much, people can make political hay with this. Right. And it's, it, uh, it is unfortunate. Can we maintain this level of productivity if we start forcing down and cramming down pricing? Uh, my initial prediction is no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, doctor. Uh, I mean, I, can't, you know, I can give you the direction of change. I can't give you the magnitude sure. without more work. We're already seeing companies just remove themselves from the European market. Now, that puts their intellectual property at risk because mm-hmm. if you don't utilize your IP, you can lose it. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple companies, and there was just one, Bluebird Bio, uh, basically a year ago said, well, um, we're done negotiating with you people. We can't get the price. We are pulling out of Europe. And they picked up stakes and left. And I did receive a confidential phone call from a member of the European Commission. Uh, Well, why did they do that? And it's like, well, it's pretty obvious why they did it. It's because they couldn't make any money here. And they actually had a better return on investment shutting down and leaving. They actually made more money because economics isn't maximizing profits. It's also minimizing losses. You know, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, politics operates on income transfers. Yeah. So so what people are, are angry about, if those that are angry are, well, those people there are getting more of the pie and therefore I get less of it, which means I have to pay, right? And the government, unfortunately, since Johnson has gotten the government in the business of redistributing income. So this is kind of in line with the thinking that's been going on for 40 or 50 years of what the government does. And it's having now starting to have these very microeconomic effects, as for example, in the pharmaceutical sector. And, you know, I I think for people like us, we look at this and, and, and it's not a question of advocacy of a certain position. It's just don't screw up the efficiency of the market. If you want to redistribute some income, okay, you can, you know, do that. But 
don't restrict markets because you end up lowering the income that is potential to be created. This is Europe's problem. Right. They, they regulate everything at a given market level, and they reduce the total GDP that the European economies can achieve. They shrink the pie, and then they start dividing up a smaller pie. And, and this then is, they end up having to raise taxes. And on then they end up yeah. raising taxes and doing all these other things. So we got a little off topic there. I'm sorry. But, uh, <laughs> no, but it's, it's yeah, relevant. But yeah, it is. If we look at some of the other core findings of our study, and one of, this is, one of the findings is pretty well-trodden territory. We do know that of the 250 drugs or so, the 60% of the 363 that originated in the United States that 55% of those were innovated by small companies of less than half a billion dollars, 500 million in revenue. Yeah, that was yeah. a nice finding. Actually. But it's been known that you know, the large companies partner with the small companies. This is, this is known. And it's, it's illustrated in the work we've done. However, one of the other things that really came out of the data, which we were totally not expecting, was while 102 of those drugs that we looked at were innovated by small companies. There were also 91 that were innovated by large companies. So large, large companies do punch pretty hard and they do very well. But what was fascinating about those 91 assets that were invented by the large company, roughly a third, 30 of those were out licensed to small companies based on the target size of the population they were going after. So there seems to be an issue of scale. Harry, why would that occur? Why would a large company that invents an asset, but, oh, this is an orphan drug, why would they then out-license that to a small company? Actually, for the same reason that when you want to take out a loan from a bank, Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't meet a minimum threshold for the amount you want to borrow, they don't want to talk to you. Okay. (laughs) So, So there's a lot of fixed costs. Uh, a lot of uh, sunk costs, fixed costs that are involved in that. So what, what we observed, which, which, as you say, was kind of a surprise, but it was very interesting, was that, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies are really kind of in the business of operating at scale. So if they have a drug that has a relatively small population, an orphan population, that type of thing, they're uninterested, I guess, or do not feel that it is the advantageous for them to carry that through. So they return it back to the smaller companies and allow them to manage that process in cohort with the large pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, obviously the large pharmaceutical company is keeping a stake in that financially. Absolutely, and a lot of that is their value chain position right? Large pharmaceutical companies, while they innovate, and we saw that in the data, they do contribute significantly to the innovation and the creation of new drugs. Um, they also have this heft in terms of the marketing and that. So at the end of it, that, that's kind of their bailiwick, if I can use that term. And we also saw a lot of those come back in, too. If right, the indication right, got larger, right, they would exercise right, an option and bring right. it in. But, but remember, we also looked and we said, okay, if you were going to draw a pharmaceutical out of an urn, yeah. And it would be a blockbuster. What's the probability it would have originated in a large company or originated in a small company? It was roughly 60-30, something yeah, like that. Right. Yeah, right. For small companies, 60% chance that it would have originated in a small com- company. So that kind of goes to the discussion about sort of the whole biological ecosystem and who should do things or not. So when we get proposals that say, and I think there's something in here in Europe, they wanted to let the government take over everything. Oh yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. (laughs) Okay, sorry. I've been following this since my days um, at the University of Wisconsin when I was doing my graduate work. Go Badgers. Started Go Badgers. And I started my career at Bristol-Myers Squibb, and it's a long, long time ago. 
we have seen an incredible shift and an evolution in the industry. Today, a, a large number of these innovative new therapies do come from small companies. The large pharmaceutical companies have the kind of muscle that Harry just referred to. But it's not just the marketing muscle, because that's important. But they specialize in clinical development, and they have a vast array of, of specialists from the scientists, clinicians, and, and what have you, that are able to design clinical trials. They have the cash to put into these large clinical trials. It's a healthy evolution we've seen. It is totally organic, and that is that it's out of necessity. We've seen an incredible increase in venture capital funding over the past 40 or so years, which fuels these uh, smaller companies in these, in these really important ideas. It makes a lot of sense to allow these small companies to continue to invest, oftentimes using venture capital investment, to take it to a certain point, to advance the therapy, a, a therapy to a certain point, keeping an eye on it, providing expertise in the knowledge to move it along. And then when it comes time to develop a therapy, when it comes time to finish uh, clinical trials, the hard work of the manufacturing and distribution, etc., that's where the large companies have such a huge impact on bringing these therapies to the to the market. So, mm. I think just to cut a long story, make a long story a little a tiny bit longer. This is not a bad thing. This is a very very good thing because those who are doing, those that are involved in this work, are using their their gifts to the best of their ability. And I think it, it's something that we ought to be fostering rather than poking at as something that is uh, that is negative. And yeah. that's, oh, that's bothered me uh, for yeah. quite some let me, time now. Let, let me jump in and, and again uh, paraphrase uh, Adam Smith. Specialization is limited by the extent of the market. So if you, if you think about the development of pharmaceuticals in the last hundred years, all of this uh, innovative research and things that have discovered new ways of impacting the human body and at the cellular level and all of these things, and you, you both know much more than I do about this, you know, we've suddenly opened up an enormous uh, panorama of potential diseases and uh, human afflictions that we believe can be treated through the biopharmaceutical sectors and that is the size of the market expanding and so in order to do that uh, it's natural that you get specialization in different areas in order to handle that no one company no five companies could manage all of that i actually now makes me think i'd like to get a nice history of the of the uh, the use of pharmaceuticals over the last hundred years and observe that development that has happened and how we've developed and of course research universities and all of these kinds of things to support that whole type of system well if i can just say i mean the sort of ability of the industry right now to alter the scale based on the demands of the asset. I mean, Joe and I yeah. just flew here to Charlotte from Washington, D.C. We weren't on an A380. We were on a small plane because mm -hmm. it would be very inefficient to fly an A380. There you, go. <laughs> you know, there you go. You know, you need to have that scalability based on the demands of the asset. But what we also saw in that was the U.S. market is extremely unique right now 
in this ability and the availability of these specialized small companies to, to be able to take on these orphan drugs and develop right, them right. and meet depth. those demands. Yes. We have the depth. And a depth of I, a bench. To use a new word that seems to crop up a lot these days is resiliency. Yeah. Uh, so, and, but, and redundancy. And, and redundancy. Yes, that's true. One of the examples that, you know, Dwayne, we spoke about this with our good friend John Lamatina, formerly of Pfizer as well, and now a venture capitalist. He told a beautiful story of this handoff, if you will, but one of the best examples we can think of, which is the BioNTech-Pfizer collaboration. We were hit with a pandemic, if you, <laughs> as we really? all Did know. Really? Did I miss that? I you must, must yeah. have missed it. Yeah, I was uh, asleep, I guess. In, yeah. You know, back in, uh, in the beginning of 2020. Pfizer's CEO said, we're going to attack this. I want ideas. I want them tomorrow. I want them yesterday. They looked at all kinds of different technologies. They looked at all kinds of, uh, of antiviral therapies, and, and they figured that the vaccine was something they needed to go after. There was a relationship between Pfizer's vaccine development group and BioNTech, a small German biotechnology company. Within a matter of literally weeks, they had an agreement they were moving forward on a handshake, was a which handshake is deal. You know, something that would take months. And they identified a few targets. I think it was four. They started ramping up production, manufacturing of this mRNA vaccine before they had approval. Their own money, billion or billion and a half, it ended up being $2 billion worth of investment of their own money before they even had approval. That is unprecedented. That seemed, at the time, to me, it seemed crazy. As soon as it was approved under the emergency use authorization, it was available. That would never have happened without Pfizer's muscle and money, and it never would have happened because a small biotechnology company called BioNTech in Germany would never have been able to make something like that happen. By the second week of October, when I was flying from Belgium to Washington when we were working on projects in D.C., I remember one flight in particular, I was the only person on the plane, 787 to myself, and I'm like, how is this feasible? And the flight crew, obviously, had a very close personal relationship with the flight crew on that flight. Pfizer was manufacturing vaccine out of their plant in Belgium, which is huge. And the plane was full of vaccines. This is the second week of October, a month and a half before they had approval, cranking out millions of doses a day. In the course of our research on the Neller 2, one of the things we uncovered was the enormous growth that we've seen in early-stage venture-backed startups in China. Mm. Now, it's early days, and certainly China's not without risks and problems, as we've just seen over the last 18 months with COVID, but these numbers that we're seeing on early-stage growth in China, maybe we can't be so capricious with how we treat the sector here. You know, it's just this idea, when you put up barriers to the flow of, of things, then it's going to seek an alternative path. And so, you know, the analogy there is that if we increasingly put up barriers to the innovation and uh, development of new drugs in the United States, we kind of tamp down that industry. If we could use the Europe as, as the precursor of what could happen into the United States. The canary, the canary yeah, in the coal mine. It's the canary in the coal mine. It's just going to go someplace else. And China is already investing. It is part of their industrial policy now. Biotechnology is one of the things. It's no longer solar panels biotechnology. So if you look at 
the research centers that are being developed through funds of the Chinese government to attack these innovative areas, it's going to be there. And, and if uh, that turns out to be a cheaper route for people to be able to develop these drugs, they will leave the United States. Joe, how do you see this evolving now? The Chinese are investing. They're investing very heavily, as are uh, the South Koreans as well. Yeah, absolutely. Building these enormous clinical infrastructure in these hospitals with bypassing all of the paper you know, medical records, and they just hit the ground running. I mean, they can crank out clinical studies so quickly. They're investing in hospitals. They're investing in clinical research uh, and all of the human capital that goes into that. They're taking it very seriously. They also, frankly, let's face it, they're looking at the IRA. Innovation Reduction <laughs> the Act. The Innovation Reduction Act and others. <laughs> and they have, to be, they have to be licking their chops. They have to be thinking, wow, this is exactly what we need to you know, force investment this way. They know that the industry isn't, isn't going to go back to Europe, uh, not without some radical change in policy. Oh, in and I'm sure opinion. that's coming. Yeah. It's been an incredible change over the last couple of decades, certainly. I think that's it. They've gotten serious. They've invested. And they invested in all of the pieces that they need. And they're hoping that the United States will do the wrong thing, erode or ruin the wonderful ecosystem that has been built here. If we look at CAR-T therapies, they came out of the Weissman Institute in Israel. They were developed in partnership between Penn Medicine and the NIH, as well as the Hutchinson Institute. If you go to 2019, there was an article in Cell, and it outlined where clinical research was going on in CAR-T at that point. 140 CAR-T trials in the United States, very interesting. There were over 200 in China. There were over 200 at that point, and there were only 35 in Europe. Europe's going down a path now where they're going to use what's called hospital exemption, which means hospitals can produce CAR-Ts in the hospital and bypass a European EMA regulation approval. They can actually just go homebrew locally. So essentially what you're doing is setting up a system where you can bypass the regulatory structures that all the companies who've invented this stuff and spent billions of dollars in. And then you can go through the local health authority through a home-brewed CAR-T and then present that and basically cannibalize the intellectual property and the know-how that's been invested. If you're in CAR-Ts now, what are you doing in, in Europe? What's bad is going to be worse. It's as simple as that. This is such a cynical, horrible policy that makes no sense for a couple of the reasons that you mentioned and more. The first point is that we don't ever want, we should never want two different classes. That is the one from industry that has been held to the highest possible standards. And then one that can be done, as you call it, by the home brew process. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It certainly isn't fair to industry, but the most important thing is, if this is going to be cannibalized in such a way, why on earth would you even develop them in the first place? If you know there's going to be a very good chance that what you've developed and spent billions of dollars producing can be taken by anyone else, why would you possibly invest in the first place? And this gets us to the decision that was made in the World Trade Organization around mRNA and a project we're currently working on now, looking at the potential impacts of that. Harry, you used to work 
for the federal government quite a, a couple of years, a couple <laughs> yeah. of years ago, Harry, I know, but a few, uh, years. a few years ago, from your perspective, from a competition standpoint, what does this mean practically if we're looking at innovative IP and now we're setting in different pathways and we're actually attacking the ability to utilize this IP that's being, you know, 60% of the time mm. created here? It's obviously theft, right? That's one. But the other thing is that ties in, uh, you know, completely with the whole subject of accelerated approvals that we just discussed, sure. right? You're just dramatically increasing the uncertainty about what is going to be the return of undertaking this activity. And if I feel that people are going to usurp that knowledge, and I don't have a way to prevent that, I can't sue them in court, I can't do something else, that means that in the vernacular, you're not what we call the residual claimant. You're not going to be able to benefit from your work. You're not going to be able to get the income that you planned on in order to have that thing be at least a net present value that's positive. And therefore, as Joe said, you don't do it. So you don't do it. Fine. The fact is, Europe is still depending on China, the second or third largest market in the world. It's a market of 400 million, 500 million people, depending on how you slice it. But the reality is this industry started in Europe. But what we're looking at now are the potential competitive issues that are being raised in the United States where we're going down the same path. People are looking for a free lunch in the U.S. Congress because it's popular. A road to hell is paved with good intentions, as they say. (laughs) It's very important to separate out what economists worry about, which is economic efficiency, allocative efficiency. You know, is this gone? Is this being undertaken in the best way possible? Is there a way to reallocate things that would make things better versus the income effects that happen from various kinds of policies? And this is what gets fought over in a political context. Right. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is more of the the income transfer are, you know, uh, coming in. Everything is being politicized. We know what the science is, but nobody's following it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, they, they, they've kind of gone off into the wilderness here on certain things, and it's very troubling. And it's, it's troubling that the WTO is also trying to uh, kind of raise its profile in some way by doing these so-called magnanimous things by stealing other people's intellectual property. But unfortunately, it had the support of U.S. trade. It had well, USTR. Well, you know, there's lots of idiots in the room. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly, that's Dr. Harry Bowen, everyone. Thank you very much. <laughs> but the, the, the frustrating part about this is the waiver and giving the intellectual property or making it available was to increase supply. Right. Yeah. And yet billions of doses, hundreds of millions of doses are going to waste. Was it really to increase supply or was that the excuse to finally pry open intellectual property? Well, that's a wonderful point. That was the popular uh, version of why we should do it. Poor people can't get vaccine, which totally is untrue, which I think what Joe's alluding to, right? Of course, yes. Uh, And and so this was the, you know, this is the political animal in it, right? Right. Uh, Doesn't cost us anything. And so why don't we just steal that? those mean old American biopharmaceutical companies. The person who stood up against that deal initially was Angela Merkel, who had a lot of skin in the game because of BioNTech. Right. But unfortunately, she's not there anymore. No. You know, I remember I tweeted out, finally, an adult enters the room, and it got retweeted like a times, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, there's a lot of that going around (laughs) these days. (laughs) We got a lot of, we're a lack of adults everywhere right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, your point is, is well taken, Dwayne. It was an excuse. It, yeah. was a, it, it, it was an excuse. And it's, it's sad to think that that's the case. But, you know, it is. 
but it's so dangerous. It's cynical and it's, and it's dangerous because it's going to have a huge negative impact on innovation going forward, or at least it has the potential to do so if we're not careful. Yeah, well, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. No, we're throwing out the tub. Yeah, <laughs> we're just the whole thing. We're chucking the whole darn thing <laughs> out the window at this point. On that note, there's something that happened last week in the European Parliament. If the U.S. is running five years hence from bad ideas that originate in Europe, the European Parliament think tank recently published a study. And in this study, the recommendation is, and I'm going to quote, to take drug development away from the private sector to boost efficiency and save money, unquote. What do you think is going to be the result in Europe, given everything we know now? If this is what they're going to do, they're going to start actually usurping private investment and private development. So I would just say, what, what drug are they going to do first? <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good question. The, uh, one that's really needed. Yes. Um, <laughs> and really hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cancer moonshot, man. Exactly. <laughs> oh, there's so much we'll, we can we'll, go we'll into talk, there. We'll, we'll have to talk about that later. Well, it's, it's relevant. It's, rele- it's relevant. <laughs> oh, man. I'm sorry. What strikes me about this in quotes, take drug development away from the private sector to boost efficiency, save money, etc. It's so wrong on so many different levels. That's what drives me crazy about statements like that. It's so hopelessly naive that it's hardly worth responding to, but here I am responding to it. Well, because the problem is, Joe, we know five years from now, someone's going to float this here. We're already hearing it around March and rights. It plays well in Berlin. It plays it plays well everywhere. It plays well in Berlin, is that what you said? Sort of like cabaret and pre-World Paris. War II? And Paris. <laughs> yeah, we know how that worked yeah. out. <laughs> Dwayne, this is the conversation that we've been having for the 12 years. It's really about more than 12 years yeah. since you and I first met. This is this canard about the NIH doing drug development. It's a, it's a very similar thing. The NIH develops all medicines in the pharmaceutical industry and biotech industry just comes along and skims off and the top. Skims basically. off the top yeah. uh, and, and, and basically markets and makes money. It, it, that, is so, that is so flawed. It's really worrisome. But what I was saying is this statement about take drug development away. In the first place, how do you even do such a thing? Take it away by force. Uh, take it away by policy. Uh, well, let's you know. let's be optimistic. Let's not be overly cynical. Let's say they're going to set up a government-funded research institute with the goal of doing drug yeah. development. So it's a parallel institution yeah. outside of the private sector. Yeah. And again, I don't suggest that that anyone is thinking they're going to come in with with force and you know at gunpoint. That's not my point. But there are mechanisms to take away you know, and industry's ability to do things and it's through policy making and, you know, bad policy prescriptions. Why would anyone want to mess with something that works so well? Is it perfect? No. Is it flawless? Could it be better? Absolutely. But that kind of strong language, you know, really gets the hackles, my hackles up. I, it really is very worrisome. And then when you think about boosting efficiency and saving money, it is just the absolute polar opposite. There is no way that government is going to make drug development more efficient and to save money. It's not possible. It is so foolish. The whole notion is so foolish. But again, our fear, my fear, your fear, as we've discussed, especially over the last couple of weeks, these kinds of ideas, this kind of dangerous you know, notions, rhetoric, 
is something that, that is going to play well in certain circles here in the United States. Mm-hmm. People want to do this stuff. We, we talk about the hospital exemption earlier. Yeah. There are academics in the United States who, who want to do this. Now, our Food and Drug Administration, I think, is strongly opposed. Crazy ideas have this habit of coming back, uh, you know, year after year after year. You made this really interesting point earlier, Dwayne, when I started working with you in Vital Transformation seven plus years ago, going on eight, I can't believe it. We've talked over and over again about how these bad policy prescriptions that you see emanating from places like Brussels find their way into the halls of Congress. They find their ways into policymaking in, in the United States. It's so easy to do that. It's viral. It just, it spreads. There are things called planes in the internet and the yeah. same people promoting this stuff in Europe are working with organizations here. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I've debated one of these people at the Gastein conference and then two weeks later saw him walking around the U.S. Congress. Like, what are you doing here? And so we know that these things are occurring. But the irony there is we were at Bio, the French health minister, Joe, I mean, you spoke to the guys at Bio about the French health minister. I mean, what were they saying? <laughs> well, that that was a great story that um, a good friend will go nameless had with uh, a French health minister at the bio meeting in San Diego last June. And the, the question was, what do we do to reinvigorate, to jumpstart our biopharmaceutical industry here in France? And of course, the answer is simply be supportive and pay for medicines when they are developed and stop uh, putting up roadblocks for the industry. Pretty simple. Well, we work with a company, or we have worked peripherally with a company. They've never been a client. But I know for a fact they had a new drug that they were trying to put manufacturing into France. They were looking at building a factory. They were looking at collaborating with several university hospitals there in the development and manufacture of this product. And they said, look, we will do this All we ask is that you buy the product. We just want to guarantee that you'll buy the product. The French government said, no. To me, that is just crazy. There's a great opportunity for knowledge transfer, innovation, technology input into the university. Yeah, but they didn't do it. They wanted to do it. That, that's my yes. point. They didn't want a private company to be able to do it. But that. as Joe just said, now they're coming up to bio. There were 20, what, 15,000 people at the conference. How do we get it back? Well, you lost it. Maybe don't destroy it in the first place. And you know, maybe the lesson for our lawmakers, whose responsibility it is to, you know, <laughs> to govern, they're doing the same thing in the United States. You look at biotech and pharmaceutical hubs like Boston and, again, San Diego. San Francisco. San Francisco. South they're governed by people who are so hostile to the industry. And they're so hostile. They're hostile to their own constituents. I don't understand. And they get elected. And re-elected and re-elected. But we say that, but we just had a meeting, and we're not going to say with whom, but we had a meeting with a fairly prominent congressperson who is from one of those districts and is trying to stop the rot. And right. they're on the Democrat side of the aisle. So yeah. there seems to be a understanding, at least they would never probably say that, that they'd spoken to us about this, but we know that there's an understanding, hey, we got a problem here. Because that was articulated to us. Very, very clearly. That was a stunning conversation to to us, to me, certainly to me. And it gives me a great deal of hope that we can get through to some of these folks. Because 
this particular Congress person looked at the analysis that we have done, seems to be a fan of, of the work. Certainly knowledgeable of it. Certainly very knowledgeable of it. And fully recognizes that the prognostication that you guys, you economists have put forward, are absolutely spot on. Knows the risks to constituents and to companies in, in district and I think is going to work hard to do something about this potential destruction of this important ecosystem. So our study, we've looked at the ecosystem. We know the U.S. is profoundly productive. It has the scalability, the ability to move assets back and forth. 60% of global assets are now being invented in the United States. Harry, core takeaway, what's the one message we should say about our study? Don't mess around with the system. You know, again, it, I mean, there's a philosophical debate going on here, right? It, it, underlying it has to do with choice and individual and free markets, what we call free markets. Uh, pe- people make decisions to do or not do in that and, and get the heavy hand of government out of it. It's choking potentially and even more so uh, what can be possible. And I think, again, the canary in the coal mine and, or in the cage or whatever it is, is Europe. And, and probably before Europe, if we go back a bit more, we could find someplace else that that preceded that. Uh, this is a dangerous road to go down. Joe, any core takeaways from you? We liken this ecosystem as an ecosystem because it's understandable to anyone who's not a scientist, not a, necessarily a, a healthcare economist. What's so critical is that when you pull strings, when you interrupt parts of an ecosystem, things fall apart. And People understand this. The layperson understands this because uh, ecological ecosystem is understandable by most people. You mess around with the component parts of something that's very, very complex. You interfere. You fail to support. You throw stones. You fail to pay for resulting products. You pretend that the work can be done elsewhere, better, cheaper. And I mean pretend because they they really know in their heart of hearts that 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 can't happen. You're going to hamper this ecosystem. You're going to to hamstring it. You're not going to get out of that system what we're hoping for and what is so badly needed. That is advances in, in, uh, in pharmaceutical therapies. And I think to underscore that is basically... Um, you know, a lack of critical thinking skills on the part of the general public population. So they only see it as, well, I get my, the price I pay for my drugs can be lower. I yeah. know that. And they don't, they don't think beyond that, that particular question. But unfortunately, that's how it's being framed by the media, the news, the politicians. Unfortunately, that's how it's being right. discussed. Well, Harry. that's, of course, always then the unintended consequences <laughs> that we talk about a government policy. But in fact, many of the people do know these intended consequences, and then they act in their own self-interest and uh, not in the interests of the United States. Yeah. The study is called The U.S. Ecosystem for Medicines, How New Drug Innovations Get to Patients. I should also give a huge amount of credit to Gwen O'Laughlin, who was the project manager on the study, who did a tremendous amount of work analyzing the patents. Thank you, Gwen. It's available for download from our website at vitaltransformation.com. Joe, great to see you as always. Great to see you, Dwayne. Thank you. Harry, always a pleasure, sir. I'm still grumpy. <laughs> Born grumpy, going to stay grumpy. There you go. Here. I'm going to stay grumpy. <laughs> Got to have dinner. Well, I'm going to feed the grumpy old man and give him a cocktail. Thanks, everyone. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. 
The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.